Okay, good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 20. So if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 14. Um, Please stand in honor of God's word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Morning, brothers and sisters. So we're going to be in Genesis 20 this morning, so the passage that Kristen read, um, if you're not still there, you might want to turn back there. Um, While you're turning, I want you to think, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you probably know about the prophet Elijah, um, pretty well-known prophet in the Old Testament, and maybe many of you have been encouraged by the story of how there was that showdown with the prophets of Baal, right? And, you know, they tried their hardest to um, have their gods answer, you know, cutting themselves and dancing all around because, you know, Elijah said, let's see who the real God is and whose God showed up. Elijah's God. Fire from heaven. The sacrifice was burned up. And obviously it was clear who the real prophet was, right? All the prophets of Baal were false prophets of a false god. But then, do you know what happened right after that? Jezebel, this nasty queen, threatened his life, and he took off into the wilderness, and he was afraid. He fled. So has anybody ever been encouraged by that, to see that somebody as courageous and bold as the prophet Elijah was also scared for his life? Anybody? Am I the only one? Okay. So that was because of a threat. It was encouraging to see how he's so real because we can go from faith to fear pretty quickly, right? So that was because of a threat. Well, similarly, Genesis 20, we see Abraham oscillate between faith and fear. It's not the first time, but we see it again here. So having finished up our series on discipleship, we're heading back into the book of Genesis and picking up where we left off. Uh, we ended back before Christmas, actually, 
um, in chapter 19. So a little bit of refresher, kind of catch us up to speed, a little bit of review here. So from 30,000 foot view, the book of Genesis is divided into two main parts. These are really big parts. So chapters 1 to 11 have to do with primeval history, the origins of the world and God creating all things and the flood and so forth. And then chapters 12 to 50 have to do with patriarchal history. So primeval history, patriarchal history. Um, Chapters 1 to 11 start with one man and then one woman, God's people, right? Adam and Eve. He blesses them with good, good, very good. He made them for his glory. And then they're tempted by Satan. They doubt God's goodness. So rather than living by faith, they doubt God's goodness and they rebel and everything just spirals downhill from there. So God's goodness in creation overflowed to order and fill the earth. Mankind's sin overflowed in injustice, violence, disintegration, chaos, and judgment. Okay? So even after the flood, the sinful heart of man had not been changed. So after the flood, you end up in chapter 11 in the Valley of Shinar with the Tower of Babel, right? So many people living for their own glory rather than God's, for their own name rather than God's. And so God scattered them and thwarted their prideful plans. But in those first 11 chapters, all the way back in chapter 3, God gives some good news. He promises that one day the offspring of the woman is going to crush Satan's head. Okay, so there's good news following hard on the heels of the bad news right off the bat. So we are waiting for a deliverer. Okay, so chapters 1 to 11, origin of everything, good, 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 very good, but it's just shattered by sin. And yet, there's good news. God's going to crush evil by means of the offspring of the woman. So we're waiting. Then chapter, chapters 12 to 50 captures the history of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? So chapters 12 to 25 are about Abraham, the father of faith, and his wife, Sarah. So the section starts off much like Genesis 2 with one man and one woman, God's new people. He calls them out from Ur of the Chaldeans and promises to bless them, bless them with land and offspring and make them this great nation, right? So Abram believed God and they left their homeland. And so in between chapter 12 and where we are now, it's like a roller coaster of faith. He's up, he's down, he's up. It's, sometimes it's just like a circus because of their unbelief. But then there's these beautiful moments of Abraham trusting God. And so we see both his faith and his unbelief through these chapters. And chapter 20 is no no different. We've seen them vacillate, oscillate between faith and unbelief before, and here we go again. So chapter 20 follows on the heels of chapters 18 and 19. In chapter 18, Abraham's faith worked through love as he interceded for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was really desiring to deliver his nephew Lot and anyone else who was right with God in those cities. So remember, he said, well, if there's 50, you won't destroy them for 50 righteous, right? Well, I know how bad it is down there. Maybe 45, maybe, you know, he goes down, finally 10. Okay, for 10, I won't destroy them. But there aren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So God judges those wicked cities. And so he had just in love, faith and love, interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And now, after those cities have been judged, Lot was rescued, now Abraham is oscillating back to unbelief. Out of fear, he returns to a deceptive pattern and endangers his wife in order to save his own skin. So, 
First point here as we dive in is we see a threat to the promises. Okay, so there's an outline in your bulletin, or you can follow along on the, the slides behind me here. Um, so first point, threat to the promises. So as Abraham journeys on, he perceives a threat. Um, from there, he was previously at the Oaks of Mamre, and Abraham journeys toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Okay, this is not the first threat in Genesis, whether real or perceived. There have been other threats already. So what are the promises? He was promised land, right? But it's occupied by people more powerful than he. That's a threat to the promise, right? He's promised offspring, that he's going to become a great nation. And his wife is barren. She ain't getting any younger. <laughs> so that's another threat, right, to the promises being fulfilled. Or famine was a threat. So they went down to Egypt. Enemies are a threat. So God's promises constantly seem to be in jeopardy. And so what happens when God's promises seem to be in jeopardy? Sometimes we're tempted to kind of help God out a little bit as if he needs it. <laughs> we take matters into our own hands. And that's what Abraham does again here in chapter 20. So he says to Sarah, his wife, I'm sorry, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, verse 2, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So if you know the story thus far, you know this isn't the first time this happened. Back in chapter 12, like I mentioned, there was a famine. Abram went down to Egypt where the Nile River could support life better in the midst of drought conditions, right? So Genesis 12, uh, 11 to 13, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Cowardly thing to do, isn't it? In the face of the threat, taking matters into his own hands. And sure enough, Pharaoh saw her, took her into his harem. The Lord intervened, didn't he? Right? He afflicted Pharaoh and his household with plagues. It's kind of an early precursor to the Exodus, right? So the Lord delivered her from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh sent Abram and Sarah away. Let my people go. Get out of here. <laughs> so despite that turn of events in Egypt, sadly, we're right back here again. Same thing. So as we hit chapter 20, I think a number of things could hit us if we're paying attention to the unfolding of the story. But one of the things we're supposed to feel is suspense. We, we, we're familiar with the story, so maybe that doesn't hit us. But God just promised Abraham and Sarah a son back in chapter 18. 18.10 says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So the promise is in jeopardy. If Sarah gets taken by this pagan king, how's a child of promise going to be born? And even if he is, how will we know if it was Abraham's child? You see? So Derek Kidner writes, I think this is a helpful little comment, here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. If it is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man. Morally as well as physically, because we're dealing with barrenness, right? It will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. Okay? So just enter into the story here a little bit. Why did Abraham perceive the people of Gerar, particularly the king, as such a threat? I mean, you just step into his shoes for a minute. Maybe you can understand that Abraham was afraid of what 
could happen. So he's a foreigner, he's a sojourner, and so if you're in that position, you're pretty vulnerable to being taken advantage of, right? As would his spouse be. So he's got no leverage, and he could quickly find himself in a vulnerable position. If that king wants the wife, and you're the husband, he can just kill you and take what he wants. So if I say you're my sister, then I'll save my own skin. So threats can make promises appear very implausible. God had already said that he was going to give them a son. God had already delivered once. Like, he's able to do this. He's able to take care of Abraham, but instead, the threats, even perceived threats, make those promises appear implausible. Maybe that resonates with your own experience. (laughs) Have you ever had difficult circumstances and it's really hard to believe the promises of God for your individual circumstance because it just seems too hard? So we need to see that we're not the first people on planet Earth to struggle to trust God, to see how threats can make it difficult to walk by faith. But the real problem here, and I think, again, we need to see this, is not ultimately that external threat, whether real or perceived. The real problem is that Abraham stopped trusting God, and he feared man rather than God. So when he did that, what he did end up doing is getting himself and Sarah into trouble. He was trying to protect himself from trouble, and he got not only himself but Sarah and even King Abimelech in trouble. So the Bible warns us over and over again how the fear of man lays a snare. So let's look at it here. The second point, fear of man is a snare It lays a snare, verse 10. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So if you remember how King Abimelech responded, there's actually more fear of God in him and in the people than in Abraham at this moment. So that's the irony, right? The prophet, the seer, the one who's supposed to know God, is blind in his perception. And it's doubly ironic that the pagan king Abimelech sees things better than Abraham does. He's having to instruct and even rebuke Abraham. So Abraham assumed there was no fear of God there. And so he deduced from that perception that they would likely treat his life and dignity lightly. So this is the sad part, is when he moved from faith to fear, when he gave in to those fears, took matters into his own hands, ironically, Abraham was willing to treat Sarah's dignity lightly and even Abimelech's life lightly. So he's saying, well, there's no fear of God in this place. They're going to maybe kill me, treat the value of my life lightly. And ironically, the result was his actions meant that he treated his own wife's life and dignity lightly. This is what happens when we give way to unbelief. Ugly stuff happens because the fear of man lays a snare. And it snapped on Abraham. So he's caught in the snare that he laid for himself. So instead of dealing honestly, now that he's been caught, what does Abraham do? He equivocates. He starts dancing. Look at verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister. Half truth, it is true, but the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. 
And then, look at this, he passes the buck ever so subtly. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So what kind of explanation is this? This is smoke and mirrors, isn't it? This doesn't justify anything. He only betrays his unbelieving reasoning. So his explanation doesn't offer a defense. It indicts him. So do you hear any echoes of Eden here? Remember back in Genesis 3.12 when God came down and said, Adam, where are you? Did you eat the fruit which I told you not to eat? And the man says, the woman whom you gave me, you see how he's subtly passing the buck, the blame to God and her? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So here in verse 13, when God caused me to wander, so this word wander has negative connotations in its use in the Old Testament. It's used for like wandering aimlessly, even hopelessly, like Hagar in the wilderness. Okay? It's also used of going astray in Psalm 95. So this is blaming God. This is throwing God under the bus. Have you ever seen this progression in your own thinking? Maybe even in your own words? So you fear a threat, you give in, you yield in unbelief, and then maybe you just kind of kick against the circumstances and kind of blame the circumstances, but, you know, we're dealing with a sovereign God here, so it's kind of like this indirect, well, God, if, if only this wouldn't have happened, if only you wouldn't have allowed this to happen, then I... Do you see how we can do the very same thing and pass the buck of blame to, the God, to God? So maybe we're speaking in circumstantial generalities, but is this indirect way of blaming God, the one who is in sovereign control of our circumstances? Or we might even get more direct, like, God, if you wouldn't have let this happen, then I, it's really your fault. So we blame our unbelief on our circumstances or even more directly on God. So, so we read this right now and we just go, little weasel, Abraham, look at him dancing, equivocating, justifying. It's, it's so easy to see it in other people, isn't it? <laughs> but the, mirror, the word is like a mirror, and it's showing us ourselves. And so we need to be honest with what we see and have the Lord teach us and bring us to repentance where needed. So this is a blessing to have the mirror of the word show us our own hearts. So bottom line, Abraham is passing off his sin rather than owning it. In fact, there's something really interesting that may be going on here. You can check with Dwight, the Hebrew scholar here afterwards. Um, so normally, the word for God, Elohim, it's plural, but that's kind of a plural of amplitude, the great God. It can also be translated gods, okay, in other contexts. So stick with me here. This has a point. Get a little technical, technical here for, for a second. So normally, if you're using Elohim in reference to God, the verb is singular because you're dealing with one God, right? Abraham uses the plural verb here. Elohim to a pagan means the gods. So Abraham is talking to Abimelech like an unbeliever. This, this is how you could translate this. He's saying, when the gods caused me to wander from my father's house. That's how Abimelech would talk. That's how he would view reality. That there's you know, lots of gods, not just one god. Or maybe, yes, there's our God, but then there's other gods. So maybe, maybe this is 
helpful just to understand where I'm going with this. Have you ever shrunk back and backed off and spoken like an unbeliever because you're afraid of what somebody else might think of you? Like, this could happen even in something as benign as something um, really gracious, merciful happens circumstantially in your life, and somebody points it out that's not a believer, and you really care what they think of you, and you know they don't think much of Christians, and so you say something like, yeah, I just thank my lucky stars, instead of thanking God, because you know that person might scoff at or dismiss your faith. You see what I'm saying? So Abraham is, is kind of betraying his fear of man even in the way that he's communicating with Abimelech in that moment. Have you ever done this? I've done this. Like, rather than giving glory to God, like, I don't care what they think of me because I'm so glad for what God has done in this situation and I just say it boldly, I'm thinking of what they're going to think of me and so I, you know, adjust my language in order to not be, look, not be viewed as a, religious wingnut. <laughs> Have you ever done something like that? Do you see how fear of man would lead you to do that? So, another example of how this fear of man works out even as we try to justify our sin or we try to save face with other people. I think Abraham's trying to save face here and he's overreaching. He cares more what Abimelech thinks than what God thinks in this moment. So we could sit here, you know, and say, you know, oh, can't believe Abraham did this, you know. Didn't he learn a lesson last time back in chapter 12? Well, isn't it, like, don't you resonate with the fact that it's easier to be consistent when you're dealing in theory and hypotheticals than when the threats are right in your face? It's really easy to be consistent when there's no pressure or threat on you. A lot harder to be consistent with our principles when you're living under the threat of death or whatever other perceived threat. So can you resonate with the progression in Abraham's life here? Perceive a threat, give way to fear, and then we lie or deceive in order to protect ourselves. Isn't that a common progression? Anybody experience that? Yeah, and it backfires on us because the fear of man always lays a snare. And you get caught. God has to rescue us. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So, brothers and sisters, we are either going to fear God or we're going to fear man. And so what we need to cultivate is a reverential awe, a fear in a good sense of God. Like, we can care way too much what other people think of us. Well, what about caring what God thinks of us? We want to please Him. We certainly love people, and if we can please them, we want to do that. But if, if it's pleasing them at the expense of pleasing God, then we've given way to fear of man. So look at Psalm 34, um, 3 to 9 here. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him, don't take matters into your own hands. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Abraham had to have been ashamed in hindsight of how he handled himself in Gerar. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. So yes, the threats are there. They're going to be there. But let's not give way to the fear of man which lays a snare because the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, 
for those who fear him have no lack. So we have to look past the immediate threat to the greater threat. The scarier thing, the thing that we ought to fear more is unbelief. And we trust our great sovereign God who says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in me. Fear me, you saints, for those who fear me have no lack. So fear of man will lay a snare all over the place in our lives. This can happen in parenting. You're afraid of how your child is going to react. This can happen with little children. It can happen with teenagers. You fear their response. And so you compromise and take matters into your own hands. Right? And it lays a snare, and it'll bite you down the road. And any of us who are parents in here know how hard it is to walk that line. Right? It can happen in your workplace. You can fear that boss or manager. If I speak up and blow the whistle on this or that thing that's not right, I might get laughed at and dismissed. I might get labeled. I might get fired. And what do we end up doing? We excuse our sin. So this is a mirror for us to see the dynamics of fear of man and unbelief so that we can repent, deal with it honestly, not dance around like Abraham here, and repent. This is a cautionary tale for our good. But this is also really encouraging. (laughs) Here is Abraham, folks, the father of faith. And he's a mixed bag. (laughs) He's an unbelieving believer. So point number three, unbelieving believers. So Abraham, in chapters 18 to 19, was acting and interceding to preserve life. In chapter 20, he's acting to selfishly preserve his own life. Chapters 18 and 19, he is the righteous intercessor. Chapter 20, Abraham is interceding for Abimelech and his people, but, man, he's totally blown it, (laughs) right? So when I say unbelieving believers, and this is encouraging, this doesn't condone unbelief and fear of man, but it is encouraging, isn't it? Just like Elijah was scared and he fled from Jezebel, isn't that encouraging? Because he's like real, He's not super believer, because I don't know about you, but I don't feel like super believer very often. If I do, that's probably dangerous. These are real people. Real struggles of unbelief, I believe, help my unbelief. So it doesn't condone unbelief and fear of man, but it's encouraging because we are so often a mixed bag. We can so easily oscillate between faith and fear. So it's encouraging to know that genuine believers like Elijah, like Abraham, can be inconsistent. So Abraham believed the promises. Remember chapter 12 when God called him out. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hebrews 11 says he believed that. By faith, he went out. But when it came down to brass tacks in Gerar, Abraham didn't believe it. He was an unbelieving believer in that moment. So I I love this quote by Dale Davis. I think it's up there. Abraham had the assurance of chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless your blessers, and the one who despises you I will curse. But he didn't rub it into the picky details of life in Gerar. He goes on to say, Now if you are a Christian, that is likely true of you. Most of your failures do not come because you suddenly doubt the doctrines of the Trinity or of Jesus' resurrection, nor because you have ceased believing in Jesus' second coming or his atoning death. 
It is not that I, for example, don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Of course I do, until I rush out for an appointment and see I have a flat tire on my pickup. I do fine in my faith until I hear I have a tumor in my colon. I trust the Lord for my eternal salvation, but just not in this perplexity on Thursday morning. Doctrinal faith does not become daily faith. And then he says this, don't be so amazed at yourself. Don't be shocked if once more you find yourself controlled by your fears rather than resting in promises. Don't be surprised if you find yourself living by unfaith again. Don't say stupid things like, God will never have to teach me that lesson again. Oh, yes, he will. So again, none of this is, you know, so that we can just play fast and loose with the grace of God. Not at all. The point is, aren't you glad that God is faithful with fickle people like you and me, fickle believers like you and me? And also, I think it's even more, maybe even more important for us to connect the dots here, and let's not be surprised when our brothers and sisters are inconsistent. So, so if we look in and we see the inconsistencies in ourselves, then we're going to be really grateful that we have a consistent, faithful God, and it's going to humble us, and we're going to be clinging to Him for grace. But when we are oriented that way to see the log in our own eye, to get that out first, then we're going to be slower and more gracious and patient to start speck hunting among, among our brothers and sisters. You see what I mean? You see how getting this has implications for how we love each other? So Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should look down your you know, superior nose on them and tell them to get their stuff together. Just seeing if you're awake. That's not how Galatians 6.1 goes. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness because you're subject to the very same temptations. And if you're honest with yourself and you know how inconsistent you can be and prone to wander, then you're going to be gentle in the way that you deal with that brother or sister. So again, none of this is said in order to excuse or condone sin or just treat it lightly. This is said to comfort sinners who are prone to wander and who grieve their sin and their inconsistency. Just like that confession that we participated in this morning. <laughs> Have you said, yes, 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 but wait a second. Is God the God of Psalm 103 who sends our sins as far away from the east as from the west? Yes! Yes, and our shoulders start to straighten up a little bit and our head goes up and we're so glad that we're dealing with this God of grace, covenant-keeping God of grace. So it seems here like the covenant of promise is hanging by a thread. All of redemptive history is, is at stake here, right? But the lesson of this chapter is that God will not let his promises fall or fail. God's promises are not hanging by a thread, even when it seems like they're hanging by a thread. God will keep his promises despite us <laughs> because he is the covenant God of grace. So last point here, and this is the primary point, this is the main point, this is the most important point, is God intervenes. So let's look at how he intervened here and rescued his unbelieving believers in Genesis 20. Look at verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man <laughs> because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of, of my hands, I've, I've done this. So integrity of my heart, that's the inside. The innocence of my hands, the outside, like actions and intents. 
intentions. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. (laughs) He doesn't say against Abraham. So in God's world, all sin is ultimately against God. That's the biggest deal with sin, especially when you're dealing with his covenant people. So you remember in Genesis 39, if you're familiar with the Joseph story, Potiphar's wife is coming on to him, trying to get him to sleep with her. And here's how Joseph responds. Potiphar is not, I'm sorry, um, Potiphar is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? No, against God. You see? Like, Joseph has the right worldview. All sin is against God ultimately. So God says to Abimelech, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So it's all owing to God's intervention, not Abimelech's innocence. Verse 7, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. Another echo of Eden, right? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. If you disregard my command here, there's going to be consequences. You're a dead man. (laughs) Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So I don't know about you, but I, I kind of put myself in Abimelech's shoes, and I just think, is he just wondering, you need to get yourself some better prophets. These guys are make, this guy's making you look bad. So I read this helpful comment by Derek Kidner. I think I have this slide for it. In heathen religion, the holiness of a prophet was nearer magic than morality. Think Balaam, right? He was not <laughs> a godly prophet, right? Um, so in heathen religion, the holiness of a prophet, so maybe this didn't, you know, offend Abimelech's sensibilities like it might offend ours. In heathen religion, the holiness of a prophet was nearer magic than morality, so the reader can see better than Abimelech how far short of his title Abraham had just fallen in speaking to deceive and can compare the shame of this enforced intercession with the glory of the prayer for Sodom. He can also note how God stands by his servants, retrieving Abraham from his folly so soon after retrieving Lot. So it actually hit me as I was sitting in the pew. Abraham was ashamed of God, which is why he speaks to Abimelech the way he does. But God wasn't ashamed of Abraham calling him his prophet, which is pretty amazing. (laughs) There's language in the Bible about God not being ashamed to call us brothers. You and me, like, don't we give him a bad name sometimes? (laughs) Don't we drag his name through the mud? Don't we fail to reflect his glory? And yet he keeps loving and rescuing us and teaching us and shaping us. Abraham is going to, in two chapters, be willing to trust God with his most precious possession. He's learning in the school of faith with all the fits and starts, just like us. But isn't it beautiful that God is willing to despise the shame to be faithful to his covenant people, to keep us? (laughs) That's amazing. That's the kind of God this is. Jesus took the shame for us so that we could be honored and become God's beloved covenant people. We deserve that shame. We deserve the shame of our sin. Instead, Jesus bore all of that sin and shame in our place on the cross 
so that we could be blessed and honored as beloved sons and daughters, members of the covenant family. That's awesome. And if you are ridden with shame and guilt over your sin and you don't know the freedom of that exchange where Jesus died in your place for your guilt and shame so that you could be set free from it, not because you deserve it, but because salvation is by grace as a gift through trusting in Jesus as your Savior who died in your place, you can trust him this morning. And all that guilt and shame can be washed away. So this is a covenant of grace, of promise, and it's superintended by a covenant God of grace. Faith did not show up in chapter 20, but God did. And that's going to happen in our lives too. You know what? If we give the same confession thing next week, what are your answers going to be to those questions? Yes or no? Yes, again. But God's going to be faithful, and he's going to keep us. So faith may not show up, but God's going to show up. He who began a good work is going to be faithful to complete it. God won't allow his covenant promises to be thwarted by enemy opposition or threats or even internal folly and unbelief. So you know where this goes from here? Next week, chapter 21, is the birth of Isaac. So isn't this a setup to make it really, really clear that this is not a deserved child of the covenant. This is a child of promise, of blessing, of grace given by the covenant God of grace, right? Abraham's a skunk. Here, I'm going to give you this miracle baby and make it really clear that this is all of grace from beginning to end. See, the gospel's all over the Bible. <laughs> it's awesome. One story. So chapter 20 is going to set up chapter 22. The reception of all these covenant promises are not earned by Abraham. No, they are all given as a gift of grace. So God will do whatever it takes to accomplish, to fulfill his purposes. Even when faith doesn't show up, he shows up and keeps his promises. So this is the same God who is our God today. And this table is for unbelieving believers. So this table is actually intended to take, to, to remind fickle believers like you and me of God's faithfulness. Anybody need that this morning? I do. So we get to chew on it. We get to drink it in and say, thank you. Oh, I deserve to just be kicked to the curb because I'm just like a yo-yo. Faith, fear, faith, fear, faith, fear. But I'm so glad that ultimately my future, my hope, my salvation, my security does not depend on my fickle will, but on your sovereign will. Fighter verse. My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the ultimate grip that matters is not our grip on Jesus, though we want to lay hold of him, <laughs> right? But it's his grip on us. We want to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of us. So we're kind of like a little baby, a little, little child in a mother's arms who might feel insecure for a second if he releases. But what's the real grip that matters? It's the mother's grip. So even if the child feels insecure for a second, no, that mother's not going to drop that, that baby. So this table is for unbelieving believers. Believers, to be sure, 
okay? So if the men who are going to be serving, you can come on down. Uh, we're going to pray in a minute and prepare um, for the table. But listen, this is a table for believers. So you do need to trust Jesus as your Savior, okay? If you're still wrestling with those questions, if you're not a Christian, that's okay. We're glad that you're here. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian and how to, how to become one. So if, if that's you, just let the elements pass when they, they come by you. But for those of us who are in Christ, we know how we can struggle. And sometimes I think our struggle, we, we kind of stay at a distance because we don't feel worthy. And we actually keep ourselves from the very grace that we need to grow, to grow in faith. So what we need to do is be emboldened by passages like this that show God's crazy faithfulness to the unfaithful so that we take our unbelief right to our gracious, faithful God and say, I believe, help my unbelief. And I have good reason to, to believe that there's going to be mercy and grace meeting me when I come. I can come with confidence because I come in the name of Jesus who died for me, who, whose body was broken, his blood was shed for me so that all these promises would be yes for me. So as we come to the table, we come to be reminded of what we need to be reminded of, to eat and drink the grace, the faithfulness, of our God and to own our unbelief and our fear and repent of it and savor the forgiveness and the cleansing and the grace to strengthen us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. So let's pray and then we'll participate together in the table. Oh God, we thank you that you are so merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you have revealed your character most ultimately, beautifully, perfectly in your son. If we have seen him, we have seen you, the father. And he was full of grace and truth. And he willingly died in our place for our sins and guilt and shame. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. So would you remind us of your faithfulness and strengthen your people and continue to teach us in the school of faith that we would trust in you with all of our heart and not lean on our understanding, taking matters in our own hands. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.